Thank you, Chris. Thank you, John. Thank you for the welcome. Uh, second time I get to preach here. Uh, sort of turn up at christenings, so um, that needs to be a third child on the way soon for us to have another go. Oh, they're not here yet, are they? Oh. Um, John and I overlapped in our chaplaincies in the Air Force. We've known each other over the years. We bumped into each other in New York uh, last year, so we keep uh, finding each other. And um, nice to be here on uh, the anniversary of John's uh, induction here five years ago. So uh, those who think it can't possibly be five years, I couldn't believe it was five years already. Seems like yesterday. Um, I joined the Air Force actually 42 years ago today, when I was six years old. Uh, <laughs> this camera's horrible, isn't it? It just shows your hairline. To, oh, sorry, you haven't got a hairline, but you know. <laughs> it's the first Sunday in Lent, and uh, this is the traditional passage that we get from either Matthew, Mark, or Luke on the temptation of Jesus. And uh, it's a very important passage. It's why every Lent we start with it. I love the fact that in Hebrews it says Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And that's the important thing, uh, uh, really, for us this morning, the thing I want to focus on. Then I you, I've been watching a program on TV called SSGB. Anybody watched it? It's a drama. Two of us, three of us. Good, right? Uh, it's the one that in the Radio Times everybody writes in and says the actors mumble. So uh, if you think I'm mumbling this morning, try watching SSGB. Uh, it's, it's a Len Dayton novel where he imagines what the world would be like if the Battle of Britain had been lost. Now, of course, the Royal Air Force would never lose the Battle of Britain, so it's, it is a fiction. But he imagines that the, the Germans have invaded the UK, and we're now a state of Nazi Germany, uh, and it's set during the 40s, and we are just being run as a, as a, a part of Nazi Germany. Hence, uh, SS Great Britain. And it's interesting to imagine what it would be like if history had been totally changed. And it stopped, started me thinking, what if Jesus had been tempted in every way, but gave into it? What if Jesus had been tempted by Satan in the wilderness, where the Holy Spirit took him, and when you start to think about it, you think, actually, some of it sounds quite good. If, if Satan had said to Jesus, you know, bow down and worship me, I think today every church in the land would be followers of Jesus. Every church in the land, every Sunday, would be packed. There would be nobody in the country who wouldn't come and worship. The offering plate would be brimming over with 50 pound notes and, uh, as the smallest denomination. John would turn up in a Rolls Royce. Uh, oh, you do anyway. Yeah. Uh, he would turn up in, in, in a Rolls Royce, you know. I, I would have been staying in a five star hotel to come and preach here because everyone in the land would come to church because the devil would make sure of it. If Jesus had given in to that temptation to worship him. Actually, that's, you know, it sounds quite good, doesn't it? Everyone would be in church. There'd be no Muslims, there'd be no Sikhs, there'd be no Hindus. Everyone would be a follower of Jesus who worships Satan. What about famine? There would be no famine in South Sudan today if Jesus had fallen for the temptation to turn stones into bread. 
There's plenty of stone on this planet. You can turn loads of, you know, we could start on Snowdonia and still be going in a million years' time. Ever mind the Alps and, and, and then into the Himalayas and, and all the mountain ranges. If you can turn stone into bread, there would never be any need for food again. There would be no famine. Sounds quite good, doesn't it? And Jesus, he'd be here right now because he'd never died. And his party piece, yeah, if he stood up there, throw himself down, out would rush the angels, got him again. Everybody would clap. Yeah, I love that. Poor old Jesus, he keeps on doing that good trick, doesn't he? If he'd have fallen for the temptation. But he didn't. He was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. Jonah, who we're going to celebrate his baptism later on, wasn't born into a world where everybody goes to church, where there is no famine, because Jesus gave in to temptation. And yet the world does have problems, doesn't it? We heard about them as we're listing them in the intercessions. Just There's loads of problems in the world. It's really hard as Christians sometimes to be thankful and praising God, knowing all the terrible stuff that's going on internationally, or even in one parish, or in one family. And almost all of the stuff that goes on is because we give in to temptation. The second Adam, as the Apostle Paul calls Jesus, the second Adam didn't give in to temptation, but the first Adam certainly did, and we certainly do. So much of the time, we are tempted and we give in to temptation. And how do we fall for it? It's, uh, there's a verse in the Bible that says that there's no temptation which isn't common to man. And I think temptation comes in three ways. And Scripture shows us that. In 1 John 2, 15-17, it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. For everything in the world, the craving of sinful man the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. And in there, it lists the three ways that temptation comes into all our lives. The cravings of sinful man, or some of your translations will say the lust of the flesh. Those things that prey on your physical appetites and tempt you to fulfill those appetites in ways that God has said we shouldn't. Or the lust of the eyes appeals to self-interest. It basically says, you know, you can test the word of God. If God can say something, but if it feels good to me, it's okay to do it. And the boasting of what he has and does, or the pride of life, some translations will say, stresses self-promotion, self-exaltation. Satan faced the first Adam with those three types of temptation. And he failed. He faced the second Adam, Jesus, with them, and Jesus did not give in. He faces you and I with those three forms of temptation every day, every moment of every day, and we give in all too often. So I just want to look at them briefly. The lust of the flesh, the first one. A lot of you here know your Bibles. Uh, You know Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. But I'm going to read it to you, the first six verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Eve, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
You may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the story tells us that Adam and Eve gave in to a fleshly appetite and they fulfilled that fleshly appetite in a way that God had expressly said they should not. In Matthew's Gospel that that Chris just read to us, it said Satan saw that Jesus was hungry. He'd been fasting for 40 days and nights. I mean, no wonder he'd be hungry. I haven't eaten since about an hour and a half ago and I'm getting quite peckish. And he takes him in that vulnerability and he tempts him to turn the stones into bread. The temptation of the lust of the flesh is designed to draw us away from God's will for our lives and to serve our flesh, our bodies, our bodily appetites. The temptation of the lust of the flesh is when Satan tempts us to fulfill a legitimate appetite outside of God's boundaries. There are children present, we won't go into other things that you could do. Resisting that temptation is declaring your dependence on God to meet that need. I'll do it God's way. And we're facing in this world today a whole load of rafts of ways that you can live your life that are expressly against God's way. The temptation to follow those ways and not stick with what God has said is great. And we all fall foul of that more than we would like to admit to the person we're sitting next to. Would you like to turn to the person you're sitting next to and tell them? No, don't worry. Um, It's partly why you fast as as a church in Lent. Anybody here fasting through Lent? One of you. That's really good. What do you teach them? I know people are fasting things in Lent. I know some people fast TV. They fast drinking wine. They fast Mars bars. They fast whatever. But partly why we fast is not actually that we can give up something. It's actually so that we can say, I'm not going to meet my body's needs just because I can. I'm going to rely on God for that. So if you're fasting Facebook, Katie, um, then, you know, and you give up that for for Lent, you're actually saying, I'm not going to meet my need for gossip through Facebook. I'm going to rely on God to meet my need for gossip. No, that's probably not right. (laughs) The second one is the lust of the eyes. Genesis 3, 4 said, You won't die, Satan said. He's saying to Eve, God is wrong. Don't believe what he's telling you. Don't listen to him. Do what is right in your own eyes. And that's a mantra of, of, of the Western world today, isn't it? Do what's right in your own eyes. Whatever feels good, as long as it's not harming anyone else, surely that's okay. It eats away at our confidence in God. It wrongly assumes that God's not going to stop us doing something just because we feel like doing it and we feel it will be okay for us. And Jesus' answer is, he speaks out to Satan in Matthew 4, 7. He says, it is written, do not put God to the test. He's not saying that because, you know, 
he thinks God might fail the test. He's saying it because actually, if you decide you're going to do something that you feel is right for you, and God has said don't do it, it's because it will harm you. It will harm mankind. It will harm society. So don't test God. Don't just, just do it. It's the Nike. Just do it. And the third of those temptations I mentioned was the pride of life. Genesis 3.5 says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And there's whole movements today which are all encouraging us to be like God, be your own God. The New Age movement is full of, of you know, you can ascend to a, a sort of nirvana where you can be your own God. It's a lie. Adam and Eve didn't become like God. Quite the opposite. They became very conscious of just how fleshly they were. So much so that they sewed fig leaves together and covered over their naughty bits. Which weren't naughty until they ate the fruit. Not naughty anyway, but I quite like them. Although I won't be showing you mine just yet. If there's plenty of wine over at the party afterwards, you never know. <laughs> you see, it's a temptation to be our own God. That's what uh, it says in, in, in Matthew's Gospel. That's what happened in Genesis. And the way out for all of this temptation, these three ways that temptation comes at us, it says in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The way in for temptation, you may have noticed so far, is in the mind. You get a little thought that says, I'm a bit bored of this sermon, I think I need a wee. And then you sort of wonder out. You didn't really need that, but you know the temptation was, I don't need to hear the word of God. Or, you know, I'm getting a bit hungry, I, don't, I won't stick around, I'm, I'm, I'm going home for a meal late breakfast. Or whatever that temptation is. Or maybe something far more serious. And you, it comes into your mind, and it sows one of those little earworms that just keeps on saying, I really am hungry, I really am hungry, I really am hungry. If you're fasting... Proper fasting, I mean, not Facebook, but if you're properly giving up food, have you noticed that you don't really, sometimes you can miss a meal during the week if you're busy and you don't think about it, but if you decide you're going to fast and you come to that meal time, you are so hungry, your stomach start churning, all the juices start going, you can't think of anything but McDonald's burgers, even if you would never eat one normally. It's, it's like the body's just going, I've got to satisfy this temptation. And it's a real struggle. Fasting is not a problem. Fasting food is not a problem most of the day. It's a problem at breakfast, lunch, dinner, and when you're sat in front of the telly at night. And every bit in between, probably. But anyway, yeah. But the thing is, in 2 Corinthians 10, it says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to Christ. So when you're fasting... You take every thought captive, don't you? You think, I'm not going to think about McDonald's burgers. And then all you can think about is McDonald's burgers. I'll do a little experiment with you. I want you not to think for the next minute about a purple elephant. Don't think about a purple elephant for another minute. A minute goes by with no thought of a purple elephant. You've all just failed because you've been thinking about a flipping purple elephant. It's impossible for human beings to not think about something. 
That's why we give in to temptation so much, because it's a battle going on in our minds. We're thinking about it, and we can't stop thinking about it. Actually, the way that we stop thinking about something is think about something different. If I said to most of the men here, stop thinking about a purple elephant, you'll just think about a purple elephant. If I tell them to start thinking about something other, they don't have a problem thinking about that. In fact, most men are thinking about it every seven seconds. Football, I'm talking about. Although, coming from Croydon, and Crystal Palace being the local team, I am gutted today, and glad I'm not preaching in Croydon this morning, because I'd never live it down being an Albion supporter. But then, when you thought, and you thought, all right, I'm, gonna, not gonna, I'm gonna take that thought captive, the Bible's very clear, it says, this is what you do, Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's how you do it. You take up a thought process of thinking of the things of God. You can't think about two things at once if you're a man. Women can, but men can't. We can only think about one thing at once. And then you get the verse James 4.7, which is the crowning verse on this, and I'm nearly finished. James 4.7, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You've probably got it written on your bumper sticker on your car or, you know, above your computer or something. And people go, yes, I'm going to resist the devil. I'm going to resist the devil. I'm going to resist the devil. And then they get splattered by the enemy. Why is that? Why do we get so hammered? by the enemy when, we, when we're so keen as Christians. I'm getting up this morning, I'm going to have a day of resisting the devil. And then, bruh, it all goes wrong. Why? It's because that's not what the verse says. James 4, 7 does not say, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. It says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. The submit to God is thinking about what is good, what is pure, well, he's noble. He's saying, God, I will do it your way. Have you ever watched cowboy films or war films? I've just watched Hacksaw Ridge. Do you watch that? It's a brilliant film. You've got to watch it. And it's a bit bloodthirsty, but it's a 15. Um, but it's a true story of a Christian who is a medic, a pacifist medic in World War II uh, with the American Marines. And he saves dozens and dozens and dozens of men's lives in one night in a, in a, in a battle at uh, Iwo Jima. It is an amazing story. But one of the lovely things is when they take prisoners, they do what they do in all these films. They put their hands up. Handy, you know, and you put your hands up. Why do you do that when you surrender? Same reason you do it in worship. You're just saying, I surrender. I give in. When we submit to God, we just say, I surrender. I love to lift my hands in worship. I tried it this morning. I thumped the pillar because I was standing next to it. So I'll sue the church. Um, I... I just love it because you're just saying, God, I just surrender to you. I want to do it your way. But the first Adam failed. The second Adam didn't. We do. And even if you came in here this morning, you started Lent and you're saying, I'm going to fast. I'm going to, I'm going to resist the devil's temptation. I'm going to do it. My guess is you're going to fail. Aren't you, Jonah? Jonah has fasted speaking for the whole of Lent, but he's already messed it up. So. <laughs> he doesn't see me very often. As far as he's concerned, too often. Um, 
We don't live in a world where it's compulsory worship. We don't live in a world where actually you could just turn stone into bread all the time. Or, the, or when, you know, if we throw ourselves off a cliff, angels just come and catch us. Because Jesus resisted all temptation. We live in a world, thankfully, that has freedom of choice. Where actually there is some famine. Where there is a, a, a desire and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, a, a freedom to worship. Where actually if you jump off a high building, you will suffer the consequences. You will fail. But Jesus didn't. And if he had have failed, the world would be a very strange world. And Satan, though, thought that actually eventually he had caused him to fail. Because he got him crucified. But even then, Satan didn't win because God raised him to life again on the third day. At the end of Lent, we celebrate Easter, the resurrection. It's just such a great climax of our year. The year begins that day, really, for us, doesn't it? Life begins that day. He rose again. And because Jesus didn't give in to temptation, Satan is not Lord of all. Jesus is. And for those who have come today, who maybe you're not followers of Jesus, as our evangelist at our church calls them, pre-Christians, you may think, well, I can work life out for myself. And I've, you know, I don't need Jesus for that. I've just got one question for you, if you feel that. How's it working out? How are you dealing with the temptations in your life? the stuff that actually you just don't want to tell anybody else about. The stuff that keeps you feeling guilty, shameful, keeps you awake at night. How's it, how's it working out for you? How much temptation do you give in to? Because I want to say that when we surrender to Jesus was surrendering to one who was tempted in every way yet was without sin. So we who are tempted in every way and just cock it up all the time, I'm sorry, mess it up all the time. I thought I was in a home church for a minute. We can come to him and we can know new life. It may be that you don't celebrate Lent. Our church really aren't into it. Um, we're not a traditional church. One or two people do. And it may be that you haven't thought about giving anything up yet. Or maybe you've given up Mars bars and it doesn't seem satisfying. I just want to leave you with one thing, which is um, Pope Francis's end of his um, Lent sermon last year. So you've got a low free churchman in an Anglican church quoting the Pope. So ecumenical service. This is what Pope Francis said last year. If you're not fasting, try fasting from hurting words and say kind words. Fast from sadness and be filled with gratitude. Fast from anger and be filled with patience. Fast from pessimism and be filled with hope. Fast from worries and trust in God. Fast from complaints and contemplate simplicity. Fast from pressures and be prayerful. Fast from bitterness and fill your heart with joy. Fast from selfishness and be compassionate to others. 
fast from grudges and be reconciled. Fast from words and be silent so that you can listen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that this morning we can surrender to you, knowing that Jesus, tempted in every way, was without sin. Knowing that sinless, he died on the cross, that we could know what it is to be one with you, that we could be surrendered to you and have life in all, all its fullness right now. Lord, we confess that we are tempted in, in many ways and we give in far more times than we would like. But we thank you, Lord, that our shame, our guilt, our fear, our anxiety, our worry is washed away by the cross of Jesus. We submit to you again today. We determine to resist the devil. Lord, as we take up this Lent uh, and this period of preparation to receive that Easter Sunday joy, we ask that you help us to fulfill the prayer of Pope Francis. Now, and in the coming days. In Jesus' name, amen.